Hi, I'm Michael Shapiro, your host on Interplay, Conversations in Music. Today I have my favorite person in all of the choral world, and that's Deborah Simpkin King. Hi, hi, favorite person in all the choral world. How are you? I'm well. How are you, sir? It's Thank a delight you. to be here. Of course, we've seen each other many, many times since, and I've been to your wonderful concerts with. First, it was called Scola Cantorum of Hudson, but now it is known as Ember. Mm-hmm. which is a semi-professional course, which is absolutely outstanding. And you perform new music. So us composers just love you. <laughs> Talk about Ember, the title. Where does that come from? Well, um, as you know, we, as you just said, we performed under a lengthy Latin name for a number of years. And it's not an inappropriate name because it literally means school of singers, and then on Hudson, meaning the Hudson River. And here we are on either side of the Hudson, uh, located in both Jersey and New York, and school of singers we are. Um, But we found that uh, people stumbled over the name and it suggested uh, a sacred kind of uh, underpinning and that's not at all who we are. So uh, we thought about it and thought about it and uh, after two or three years of playing with different names that would feel like we could sing under that name, Uh, the name Ember came up. And I think it it stuck and resonated because it has so many different meanings and different connotations. Um, Certainly it indicates warmth, uh, brightness, um, there's an element of danger uh, that goes with it. the fact that you can blow on it and it brightens up, lightens up, uh, that's the use of breath, the shared breath. So, so many things about the word ember just seemed like, yeah, that's who we are. That's where it came from. Well, when you blow on it, it flames, right? It does. I'm amazed about your conducting because, you know, um, the concerts I've been to and also just talking to you about it, it, it infuses every particle of your being. Could you go back a little bit and tell me, I know you're a wonderful conductor, extremely expressive. The music informs you and then your body and hands and eyes and everything moves and you inform the music through those motions. But if you would go back in time, part of the thing that I do on these broadcasts is ask people about their backgrounds and how did you get started in choral conducting? I started out really as... um as a singer, uh, I, I, I needed to sing, I needed to express, and uh, began studying voice, and uh, little by little began, I had a marvelous, uh, all the way back to middle school, marvelous middle school teacher who uh, had a, a girls choir, and after middle school, there were five of us who just kind of stuck together, and we made our own arrangements. I was living in Texas at the time, uh, made our own arrangements, kind of traveled around Texas singing at various kinds of events. She continued to work with us and I was smitten with uh, the ensemble art. I didn't know those words at that time. I didn't know to call it that. All I knew is it was just a great time and uh, it seemed like it was something important that was happening within us. And then when it came time to to look for a school to go to undergraduate school Um, I went to a workshop that was uh, offered by my church at the time uh, to the adult church choir, and I was singing in that as a high school student. And um, the the clinician was Beverly Henson. 
who at that time was the director of choral activities at Texas Christian University. And I was quite taken with what he did, with the energy that he brought and the specifics of um, how he would dive into a score and let, uh, let the voice of the composer, uh, I mean, hopefully, you know, if, if you know, Bach isn't really very available for us these days to talk to directly, but there's a lot that we can learn from his scores and how he would interpret that. And of course, uh, Bev studied with Julius Herford, you know, enough said in terms of the musicological uh, background there. And that whole, the depth of all of that, I didn't know at the time that I would be doing a PhD in musicology. Goodness, that was, you know, a decade, you know, in the, in the future at that time. But the whole thing seemed to kind of come together. The use of the voice in which uh, my first mentor took me in, in that direction uh, in a very holistic way, Karu Karapetian. And I uh, owe him, um, you know, anything that I do vocally is his product. Um, uh, wonderful instructor and not just a voice, but also a, a, a powerful choral presence as well, and also a musicologist. Uh, so I know about I him, had, as you know, because his son, I think, Karapetian, uh -huh. narrated Ara, a piece of mine with the Houston Symphony. Yes, Ara Karapetian That's still right. lives in Houston. Yeah, Amazing. That's one of his two sons, yeah. Oh, my. Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, please. Uh, you know, I, I had some, some giants uh, on whose shoulders I chose to uh, initially not stand, but, but ride and learn and grow and become increasingly um, convinced that this was where I needed to be. And I did go through a period in my early 20s, uh, late teens, early 20s, when I thought, you know, what am I doing waving my arms around when people can't put food on their table and uh, can't balance their checkbook and, you know, I sh maybe there's something more meaningful that I can do. And I really went through some pretty difficult soul searching around it and came to recognize that you know we each have our vehicle through which to make an impact in the world. And um, mine was not so much the spoken word, but mine is definitely the musical word. And, uh, and that's what I'm here to do. It's certainly clear in your conducting and in your leadership in the choral world, which I'm gonna to get to in a few minutes about your writing and also your administrative uh, leadership. Mm. Let's go back to Ember. Okay. Ember is how many musicians at this point? Well, we have a roster of about 50 singers, uh, and we tend to perform uh, in a non-COVID year, one side or the other of 30 singers. Um, in September, when we performed, we performed with 17, and uh, a week from today, uh, the 18th of December, we will perform with 14 singers. How are you going to um, do that? Please explain. People are interested. Uh, yeah. Well, we have, um, I have really followed the science of, uh, you know, as we're learning more and more about this disease and how it is communicated. Of course, we're talking about COVID. This is for reference of the people who are watching this 27 years later and don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, it's, you know, and of course, singing has, has been deemed a super spreader event. And uh, this is disheartening news to those of us who are singers. And there was, you know, a major um, study that was done and, and all kinds of dire predictions that came out in June of 
2020, and I was on that initial uh, seminar uh, when it was presented live, and of course then it had a life after that and circulated electronically and so forth. And then there was a follow-up study that did some real specifics, uh, not just, gosh, when we sing, aerosol spews out and that's a, a horrible thing, but okay, when a singer singing in this manner sings, unmasked, it goes this far, the droplets hang this, I mean, you know, all kinds of specifics. And um, and so we, we'd learned a great deal by the time we got to mid-August, and there was what they called a round two study uh, that they presented the documentation of. They presented it at that time uh, because um, a lot of people were going back to school. I mean, right. we're in New York, right, where basically life shut down for months. Um, but around the country that was not the case and certainly not in August and and yet there was real concern you know we're going back into classrooms be they um, uh, orchestra halls um, you know with wind instruments playing be they uh, rehearsal halls for choirs what are we doing and how mm -hmm. can we protect the students and mm -hmm. the teachers mm -hmm. um, so they said you know what data we have at this point Let's make it available, knowing right. that the studies are ongoing, it's yep. yet inconclusive. But there were some things that they knew. And, um, and so following that science, knowing what we know now about what kind of fabrics, what kind of weaves of those kinds of fabrics um, uh, provide filtration at what levels, um, we designed uh, a mask, a singer's mask. Uh, and there are a number of singer's masks on the market at this point. Wow. Uh, but I have not seen one that meets the specifications or exceeds the specifications that were laid out in that round two study. There has now been an update around three of that. It came out, uh, I guess, about three weeks ago. And um, basically the data has not changed that much. Uh, but I need to study it more thoroughly to be able to really say much about that. But we developed a mask, it has five layers, one of which, the middle of which, is a removable uh, MERV-13 fabric, which is like a HEPA filter. Wow. And it, it slides into the mask. The mask itself is washable, has four layers, uh, and it has that pocket in the middle in, in which the MERV-13 filter is, is inserted mm -hmm. and can be removed and, and UV cleaned in between uses. and. Um, so we sang, that was a big part of our protocol, and then we developed other protocols as well. But you're singing together, wearing the mask, and That's you're correct. wearing the mask. Correct. And there's no buff muffling of sound? You know, it's it's kind of amazing. We have a little video uh, from the event. Uh -huh. um, you could, you know, listen to it. It's about four minutes long. Um, and and of your course, website we, name is, again? Ember. Yeah, oh, the website itself is emberensemble.org. There we go. Yeah. Uh, wow. Well, that's wonderful, meeting this pandemic with singing. What a nice well, you know, metaphor. There are so many wonderful um, electronic creativity projects going on, and you see little tiles with singers in them and all kinds of fabulous things going on. I have great deference for that. I think that is part of the answer to how we get through this time. And I have put my energies on finding ways of keeping live singing going when it can be safe, and yet making sure it's safe. You know, I, we, nobody wants to take undue risks. No, not at all. Let's go to the selection of repertoire. Okay. You conduct Mozart, mostly Mozart. You're a guest all over the place doing all kinds of so-called traditional rep, plus you mm -hmm. have worked in churches for many, many years that I've known you as a church uh, director, director of music, 
and some places called the minister of music, some director of music, mm-hmm. but you're a great organist, and you work with choruses in that circumstance. You've had concert series in Jersey of your choirs in the churches mm-hmm. doing tr- so-called traditional and new rep. Mm-hmm. But Ember is meant to do what? There are two things unique about our programming. Uh, one is we work almost exclusively with living composers. Not completely exclusively, but almost exclusively. Um, so that's one thing. The other is we will take on a theme uh, and pursue it through a year. Uh, not just theme a particular concert, but an entire year around whether it's a concept or an event um, uh, or something we, we feel needs to be looked at pretty seriously in our society. One example is last year we chose the concept of listening because we felt that we were not doing that well in our world. And our, the first concert in that series, for example, was called Civil Discourse because we felt we were lacking in that. That was this time last year. You could do that next year, too. We, you know, we <laughs> you could do probably it right stick now. with that. We could probably stick with that. Oh, my God. Uh, and we did a a, a year uh, on uh, the World War One Armistice yeah. Centennial anniversary and so forth. There. Um, so those are two things that are kind of unique about how we program, and we interact with our composers very directly. Um, our our home rehearsal environment, where we're not now, um, because it's it's too small for us to be able to be in that context and socially distance. We have to be in larger spaces where we can spread out more. But in Opera America, where we normally rehearse, um, we have uh, a big screen um, uh, TV with access, uh, and we we bring our composers in from all around the world and interact with them directly, and the singers really thrive on that, really enjoy that. I do, too. I love it. So where will this new um, pandemic okayed performance be if it's not in the small church? Where are you doing it? Well, this one is going to be in a small church, uh, but no audience. Ah. Uh, So it's entirely a live stream, and this is the first for us. So, you know, ask me later how it turned out. It'll be Uh, fine. You're a great conductor. uh, But, you know, we spread out. I was in there with my seven-foot-long rope, you know, between, you know, a post-it note on the floor for that singer and, you know, seven feet away and and spreading out around the room, fully using the space. And there is a, a technology that has been installed in the room uh, by an organization called Musae, M-U-S-A-E dot M-E. Mm. Uh, and they do a, a 360 VR experience, and they even will provide um, free glasses to uh, allow people into a fully immersive experience. Wow. So we'll see how that turns out, but we're doing that a week from today. Choral immersion. Yeah, yeah. Another part of choral immersion is your writing, and you are a major proponent in choral journals and other places of the promotion and identification of new work. Mm-hmm. And Project Encore is a, a brilliant program that you've been instrumental can we say choral mental? I don't think. <laughs> Just some about, kind of mental. I don't some know. Some kind of mental. <laughs> Tell us about Project Encore, please. Well, Project Encore came out of, uh, as with everything I do, it came out of a, a, a need uh, that we identified. And um, it actually came out of uh, the same organization that Ember lives within, Scola Cantorum on Hudson. We were approaching our 15th anniversary. Uh, the organization is now 26 years old. 
So this was back a decade, a little bit more than a decade. And um, we were thinking, well, you know, 15 is kind of significant. You know, we need to make a little bit of a to-do over ourselves. What can we do that, that really speaks to um, kind of honoring, celebrating who we are and what we do? And by that time, we had become increasingly known for working with living composers. We didn't kind of hang that out as part of our identification yet, but we did it a lot, uh, enjoyed that a great deal. And so we thought, well, you know, let's, uh, let's see what we can find in terms of programming um, uh, little-known works through the year, uh, you know, throughout the year. And, of course, my board looked at me like I had three heads, which they were right to do. They said, who is going to come to concerts of unknown music, unknown composers? So, okay, we agreed on a thread throughout the season that included that, and specifically of works that had received a premiere but that had not gotten... Uh, serious traction in the choral world. And the thing that, the reason that that was a bit of a bee in my bonnet was that uh, we had premiered a wonderful Latin mass setting, very dense harmony, not easy to do, um, fully a cappella, uh, many parts. It had gone very well. And the composer, at, could I use our uh, the, the recording of this from the concert? and shop it around the world, see if I can get other performances. Well, admittedly, that was a bit of an esoteric work, but it's a wonderful work. Three years later, he finally got a nibble. And uh, I mean, that's a long time for a really wonderful composition to sit on the shelf. And he was being very proactive. He was writing to Kapellmeister mm. all around no, the I know, world. He was sending, uh, yeah, you know, you're a composer. I'm an expert on this. Yeah, it's the second performance syndrome, and composers all know about it, but, you know, duh, compose, uh, conductors, you know, we're just kind of going along performing well, to, wonderful to pieces. to throw a name out, mm -hmm. I had this conversation with William Schumann, mm -hmm. and he said, just write and let it be, and then it'll happen, or it won't, but make sure you write it. Yeah. He spoke about his own symphonies. Peter Menon used to complain to me bitterly that he couldn't get a second performance. Yeah. And these are established names at that period, you know, and uh, it's quite true. Deborah, you know, these are issues. Let me talk to you about the choice of repertoire. You do a lot of different things. Oh, yeah. In, in, not only in Project Encore, but also your um, cho choice of repertoire. What are you looking for in a choral work that you get from somebody for the first time, whether you know the person or not? What are you looking for specifically? It has to move me as a human being. And um, there's no doubt that that's a very subjective response because we're all moved by different things. Um, I think probably early in my career it would have been a very accurate accusation. Uh, yeah if I should use those words, to say that I was a very cerebral you know, person, very cerebral professional. And, uh, you know, Shankarian, where I think I even have a Shankarian book up here behind me uh, on analysis. Mm -hmm. And I, I could get into all of that and just, you know, understanding and pulling apart a score right. and, and could get very involved and engaged and enthusiastic about the technique of a score and how, how well constructed it was and, and on and on. That's right. Um, and I still can, but that will not necessarily lead me to perform a score. 
I have to be moved by it. Now, if it's a composer I know, and I have a piece that comes to me and is just kind of like, yeah, that's going to be awkward. I just don't quite know what to say. Um, I will give it a few more listens, and often it does make its way into me, and I have to work a little harder at it, at finding what it is that can move people. Assuming I find it, even I, if I have to work at it uh, quite a bit, then I can sell it to my singers, and through them, that score can take life with an audience. Now, but if I can't, you, yeah, mm -hmm. go ahead. If you, if you can't, it, it, yeah. If if I can't find that, if I can't connect with the message of a score, okay, I have no business performing it. Well, true, and it's sometimes it's not immediate. That's right. Which That's is right. problematic because you see so many things, time wise. <laughs> well, that uh, yes, I mean there, you know, uh, Ember, as you as you referenced, we do many different things. Uh, some. Sometimes we do very esoteric things. Sometimes we do, uh, well, our September concert, for example. This was the first time people were hearing choral music since the pandemic began. It's the first time we were singing together. We needed feel good. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty close to a Pops concert. It wasn't exactly, okay. but it was very lightweight. And I love doing that sort of thing. There's an immediacy to it. And, and you know, it's, it's right there. People are just charged by it no question and you mix these things up in any concert yeah it, it, you know it's not just we're having all uh steak and pudding straight through for four courses that's right you have that's a great right. dessert and you have maybe something substantial and you have the four spice before and you know you know what to do but that comes from you being a, a great showman too you know that's well, fun to dabble well you more than dabble <laughs> It's brilliant conducting. I mean, to watch you work and the way you move your hands and your body and your eyes, it's, and you get everything out of them. It's just great. Oh, thanks. Now, to conclude our too short conversation, choral singing is community. Mm -hmm. It's being together, which now, I mean, we're friends. I haven't seen you in a long time, personally, you know? Yeah. And community of, chor of choral singing is not only tied to the secular, it's tied to the religious. Mm -hmm. You know, the churches and synagogues being closed and or limited in number of people. It's very tough. Hmm. Do you think there's a future, though, in broadcast choral singing? I mean, for example, with going to church or synagogue right now, a lot of people going. Many more people are going. I'm hearing from clergy than they used to get because people are, are tuning in. Mm -hmm. through Zoom or Vimeo or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. Do you see anything new coming out of this madness? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, for one thing, um, the, the church that I serve right now, we will never again do services that uh, are not made available electronically. Yes. And so people who, you know, they're greatest con uh, contact with a church they used to go to all the time, maybe they're elderly, was getting maybe some flowers, you know, once every five or six weeks or something, you know, the church would do. And now they can go to church, go to church every week with the rest of their congregation and see people that they know and, uh, and see their sanctuary and so forth. We will never again not do that. 
And I can tell you that for sure because quite a bit of money has been put into equipment to make sure we never again don't That's do right. that. Uh, but are you, even in are this... you playing organ electronically too? I mean, how does that work? Well, we've done a variety of things um, from the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, initially, we completely shut down the church. Nobody even went in the, the building at all. Mm -hmm. um, and we did uh, the church service from three locations. Uh, well, four locations. Uh, each of the two pastors, mm -hmm. my living room, and uh, the studio of the, the person who was running the, the Zoom yeah, technology. Putting it all together. And putting yeah. it all together. And, you know, we got increasingly fluent with it and that we did that for quite a while. And um, then as of uh, late August, uh, early September, I guess, we started, uh, we had an outdoor worship service where people were together for the first time. That was quite a moment. It and be. it was live streamed. Yes, it was. But it was totally outside, of course. And then um, in middle October, we began to have indoor worship limited numbers, you know, as dictated by the state, uh, but the protocols were so daunting that I was frankly surprised that anybody would want to come, but we had as many as we could take. People had to sign up in advance and so forth, but we, you know, the worship leaders, the, the again, the two pastors, myself, and the technicians uh, in the back, we did the service to a very sparsely populated sanctuary. Beautiful. We are now back to empty sanctuary live streaming. So, you know, at this point we've kind of been through the gamut and we're fluent and flexible with a variety of mechanisms. Well, I'm hearing this from clergy across the board that I've been mm -hmm. talking to. It's what I've been calling a lovely dedication. Well, and my choir has, uh, we haven't missed a Thursday night. That's their rehearsal night. We meet on Zoom. They do things that I'm, they tell me they just sound wonderful. And of course, I can't hear a thing. But then we rehearse music. They send it in to the man who mixes it, who happens to be my professional tenor. Uh, and we come out with an anthem. So we produce an anthem out of that choir every Sunday. This particular Sunday, we're doing oh, the that's Gibbons. Your this, choir. Yeah. That's my church choir. We're doing the Gibbons. Um, this is the record of John, oh. which is, the, you know, that's so. We're keeping it happening. <laughs> oh my! Oh, I love those Elizabethan composers. Yeah. They're everything to me. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're everything to me in the choral world. I'm oh. just amazed with the work that you do. Oh, I really thank am you. amazed in so many, many, many ways with Ember, with your guest conducting of all rep with your writing, with your promotion through Project Encore, with your administrative work as the head of local choral groups, uh, administrative groups of many choruses coming together under your guidance You're talking and about leadership. the New York Choral Consortium. Yeah. That's what you, you're I think, about. Aren't you the chairperson of that? Yes, that's my honor to be, yes. I mean, all of these things add up to a presence that Deborah Simpkin King has in music, which is a blessing to us living composers and to Bach. Uh. <laughs> so, Deborah Simpkins King, thank you for being on Interplay with me. Well, it's a, it's a great joy to be with you, Michael. I look forward to when we can sit across a table from each wow, other again. that will be amazing. That will be amazing. Well, again, thank you for joining Interplay. I'm your host, Michael Shapiro.